Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got David Contorno on the line. David, how are you? I'm well today, Michael. Thank you. How are you? I am great. It's always good to chat with people around areas that I have some expertise in. And one of those things is is healthcare and, and you're on the benefits side. So talk about uh, what you're doing and the work that you're doing and, and some of the things that you're noticing, especially during this uh, COVID-19 situation. Sure. Um, so I've been doing health insurance for businesses since I was 17. I'm 43 years old now. And, and for the first 16 years or so of that, I was a traditional broker. And, and to me, what a traditional broker is, is it's a, a person who is licensed to sell insurance, comes into an employer, um, offers them health insurance plans of the insurance carriers, is paid by the insurance carriers. That's the brokering of the insurance and sets up and installs the plan. <clears throat> um, but about seven or eight years ago, I recognized something. Um, first of all, not a single employer client looked forward to meeting with me because inevitably I was delivering at least nine years out of 10, if not more, some degree of bad news. But what started to get really tough for me was not that employer meeting because I realized that that employer meeting, I drove in in a really nice car and every single decision maker that is sitting at that table making those decisions drove in in a really nice car. The part that became really tough for me was a few weeks later after those decisions were made by the employer, I had to then unleash those decisions on their employees, the people making 30, 40, $50,000 a year. And when I started in the business and premiums were a hundred bucks and deductibles were a hundred bucks, a 10% increase, no big deal. But today when deductibles are as high as five or even $10,000 for a family and premiums are above $20,000 for a family, a 10% increase is really painful. And so I sought to change that. And I'll tell you what opened the entire world up for the change was changing how I get paid. I mentioned a minute ago, the average broker is paid commission. That means as the client's rates go up, their their revenue goes up, their commission goes up. That was backwards. So I changed that around. I went to a client, not even knowing what I was doing. And I said, do you know how I get paid? And they really didn't know, but there's all this additional bonus comp and, and trips. It's It's pretty perverse. I stripped all that out and I said, why don't you pay me a flat fee? And and when I lose the bonus from the carrier, why don't we set a bonus structure up? Because I like getting bonuses where you give me a bonus when I achieve what you want me to achieve. And he said, great. And I said, good. What do you want me to do? And he said, I want you to lower healthcare costs. And I go, oh, I actually didn't know how to do that. I was focusing on insurance the whole time, not the care. And I realized that that was a completely backward scenario. Yeah, it's it's amazing um, how... And I'm not knocking the insurance industry or brokers or anything like that at all. Um, their work is crucial. Um, but the incentives that you know are laid out from your bosses, bosses, bosses has created this situation where a lot of organizations will struggle because of kind of the equation. It's kind of, in many ways, it, it's as if it's kind of a little bit of an uneven deal instead of a win-win, a win for you and your organization because you've brokered you know policies for these organizations and they have good coverage for their employees and their organization it's kind of an imbalance where they have to make decisions of, okay, I guess we need to raise the deductible again in order to cover these you know, claims that we're seeing instead of addressing 
okay, why are those claims coming? You know, what's going on in the, the health of your employees? What can we do to address that so the claims drop? And if the claims drop, guess what? You're not going to see that, you know, big time increase in, in the policy more or less because, you're you're not you know you're not claiming up you're not using 275% of your um orthotics coverage for example or something like that it's like what in the world's going on it's like i'm not seeing anybody walking around with weird shoes <laughs> there's something going on here so i mean that's right. a wild example but no so so how did you dig into that how did you start okay what do i need to do to figure out how to keep healthcare claims and cost at a lower level well, the first thing I had to ask myself is why is this the outcome we're getting? And I mentioned that the way that brokers typically get paid is a way in which the higher the costs go, the more money they make. But here's, I'm going to blow a lot of people's minds right now. If an insurance carrier in this country, especially post 2013, and for those of you that are familiar with health insurance, 2013 should key in a little bit as to what I'm talking about. Since 2013, if an insurance company were to effectively, let's say, cut claims in half, let's say they were able to renegotiate contracts with providers, able to put in truly performance wellness programs that really helped, and they were able to cut claims in half, most people think that an insurance company's profits would go up in that, re- in that out- scenario. But the truth is that's not the case. It's, there's something a provision of the Affordable Care Act called medical loss ratios, and it says that the the insurance company can keep 15% uh, of the premium and 85% must go to medical and prescription costs for people on the plans. So that means that if they actually were to cut claims in half, they'd have to cut their premium in half, which would also cut their profit in half. And most insurance companies are publicly traded. So that means that they have an obligation to their shareholders and exclusively to their shareholders. And they literally can't cut claims in half because that would be violating the fiduciary responsibility they have to their shareholders. The other thing is how do health systems get paid? Health systems get paid the more services they provide, the more money they make. So a broker makes more money as an employer's costs go up. A carrier makes more money as an employer's costs go up. Health systems in the area make more money as costs go up. And those are the three entities that employers trust to manage their healthcare costs. And they wonder why healthcare costs keep going up. The crazy thing is we have in this in this country, especially of business people, that bigger is better. So employers think, let me go with the bigger ins- uh, brokerage house for my as my broker. But bigger means they're more beholden to that IV drip of commission. They're more beholden. There are some larger agencies out there where their entire profit margin comes from the bonuses they get from the carrier. So the base commission covers their costs. That bonus covers the profit to the owners. And it's, and it's massive. I used to be handed six-figure checks, and I wasn't even that big of an agency back in the day. So once you understand that our healthcare system isn't broken, despite what a lot of people think it to be. It's just, it's not, it's really, it's working really well for those who designed it. It just wasn't designed by employers, doctors, or patients. So it's not working well for those three entities. So once we understand the why, how do we fix it? Well, it's easy, really incredibly easy. And before I tell you how, I want to break a mindset. If I asked most Americans who their healthcare provider is, they would say the name of their insurance company, Blue Cross, United. 
those companies provide little to no care. I say little to no because United has purchased up like some doctor's practices. So they're starting to get into that space. But for the mo- and that's a different division that falls under Optum, which is a completely separate company. But for the most part, insurance companies literally provide no care. It's saying that you're, who your healthcare provider is, is Blue Cross, is like saying that you drive a Geico. Um, we don't change the healthcare, we change the way healthcare is paid for and delivered. And that's really it. So as soon as I changed my compensation model, where I didn't need the carriers for their commission or their bonus, and as soon as I recognized that carriers are never going to put us into a decreasing cost environment because it's contrary to their own interests, I was able to start. I had no longer had this box of solutions I had to go to. I could go anywhere. And so today, and for the last three years exclusively, we build health plans for employers that are customized to that employer that are completely outside the insurance carrier space. And our plans allow people to go see any doctor they want. There is no network. As a matter of fact, probably don't have time to dig into the intricacies of it on this podcast, but we believe the network is the problem. The network is what takes away transparency on price. The network is what takes away transparency on quality. And most importantly, the the, the network, which is really just a contract between a provider and, the, and an insurance carrier, is a contract that we can't ever see. It's considered proprietary and confidential. And there's so many favored nation clauses and anti-steerage clauses and anti-auditing clauses in that. It is absolutely ridiculous. The system is rigged against employers and patients. And when you build a plan that aligns all those incentives, everything changes. Yeah, it's been a huge problem, and even with you know physicians and all the compliance things that they have to do. I, I speak with physicians all the time, and you know physicians that have been practicing for well over twenty years. You will say today, on average, they're making less money now than they did fifteen years ago. And I look at them like, but your practice is bigger. And they said, well, you know, it's the compliance, it's the regulatory, it's the insurance, it's it, it's all of these things that are playing into it. And it, it's really problematic for a lot of people. And and I agree with you on the network side of things. It, on principle, the way that they pitched it, it's like you can go anywhere in the network and it's convenient for you. Well, you know what? If, if you have a specialized situation and there isn't a specialist or maybe not the best specialist in your network and the best one might be over here somewhere and they're the best and you want to go to it, but you can't go there because it's not in your network as far as what your insurance will cover then all of a sudden you're making choices and we've got enough choices to make in life. The fact of, okay, I have to go with somebody that may be not as good to take Mm -hmm. care of this care that may or may not save my life. Um, It's, it's a frustrating situation. So I love the model that you've developed because it, people can just say, okay, we've got coverage. If I need something, I can go somewhere. I don't have to think. I don't have to go, well, can I see this doctor or go talk to this specialist or you know, get this type of therapy or whatever? Yes, you can. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter where you go. Yep. It's a matter yep. of convenience. And, and I think that's a, a key thing that a lot of times these networks uh, as well aren't as convenient as they were pitched to be. Yeah. And what's even worse is the network values itself based on a discount. That was one of the reasons that networks were developed because back in the day, networks were really small and they were small by design. They were small because they had to go to those doctors, the insurance companies and say, we're going to take a high volume of patients and funnel them to a small volume of doctors. And they got discounts on the reimbursement rates. But here's the problem. Those initial discounts were 10 or 20% off of whatever they were charging in the day. 
But as insurance companies started to market themselves to their clients on discounts, they demanded bigger discounts. And the one way to easily get a bigger discount and still make both the provider and the insurance company happy is raise the starting price. And so we created this inflationary environment where all that mattered was the discount and all that the hospital cared about was the final reimbursement rate. And so you make everyone happy by saying, well, give me a 50% discount, but raise the price 300%. There's nothing stopping anyone from doing that. As a matter of fact, it happens all the time in, in care. You know, you, you mentioned something earlier about how employers have been forced to raise the deductible. And I want to just address that for a second, because I believe that employers are circling the drain with that philosophy. My first question, though, is think of you if you buy a car and you have a $300 a month budget, but the car salesman is so good that you wind up with a $1,000 a month car payment. And a few months later, you get home and you and your spouse sit at the kitchen table and you're like, oh my gosh, we have to lower this car payment. This is choking us. Do you think switching from Allstate to Geico and saving 15% on your car insurance is going to lower that car payment? Not at all, right? It doesn't change your car. Or what about if you raise your deductible on your car insurance from 500 to 1,000? Is that going to lower your $1,000 a month car payment? No. Likewise, switching from Blue Cross to United or raising your deductible from 1,000 to 2,000 is not going to change your healthcare costs. Um, but let's talk about that rising deductible for a minute because here's what's happened. As deductibles have gone up, hospitals in particular have written off more and more and more of that patient out of pocket because in our healthcare system, Hospitals don't even know what the cost is going to be until after, so they don't know how much to collect of your deductible, so they don't collect any, then they bill you. They're billing someone who makes $35,000 a year, has $500 in their lifetime savings account. They're billing them five grand or more. They're never going to get that. So what happens is, is they wind up writing off more and more bad debt. As they write off more and more bad debt, they go to the insurance companies and say, hey, you're slinging these high deductible health plans. We're writing off more bad debt, so we need higher reimbursement rates to compensate for that patient write-off. Well, the insurance company is motivated to do that because of that medical loss ratio I spoke about earlier. So they're happy to give a reimbursement rate increase as long as it's not more than their competition. They don't want that, but they want to give those raises anyway. That raise in, in reimbursement rate translates next year into a rise in premium, which translates into the average broker having no other option but to suggest an even higher deductible. And it just goes around and around and around. So how, here's how we address this specifically. Um, there are massive variations in our U.S. healthcare system in cost and quality. It is the only sector in which you can have a, a 3,000% price delta on a prescription from a drugstore across the street versus one catty-cornered from it. But the interesting thing, particularly in surgical care, is that cost and quality tend to be inversely related. Higher quality care is almost always at the lower end of the price spectrum. So let's talk about how our plans work in, in an area where quality doesn't matter. An MRI. It's, you get the same MRI no matter where you go, but here's the thing. An MRI can be $300 at the independent imaging center down the street, or it can be $4,000 at the hospital. Now, if I'm a doctor, do I care where you go? I do. Because let me tell you how I'm paid as a doctor. I am paid in two ways. Number one, the more patients I see, the more money I make. Well, guess what? The more patients I see in a day, the less time I have per patient. And then I'm also paid on something called an RVU. It stands for relative value unit. And it's a measurement of how much revenue I generate in other parts of the healthcare system. The more money I generate out there, the more money I make here. So I want you going to my hospital-owned MRI. That's $4,200 because if you go to the $300 place, which isn't even part of my health system, I make nothing. 
So there's this push. The health systems financially incentivize the doctors, just like the insurance companies financially incentivize me to do the bidding of what they want us to do, not what's in the patient's best interest. So one of the reasons doctors are such a high suicide rate and are so miserable, in addition to 40% of their time being administration and paperwork, they hate that. Uh, they have to deal with these RVUs, which are contrary to patient interest. Okay, so in our plan, the doctor would call in to pre-certify the MRI. That's pretty standard practice of all plans. They have some sort of what's called medical management. But we're going to, let's say, Michael, you were the, the, the patient and the member of our plan. Your doctor calls in to pre-certify that MRI. We say to that doctor, okay, we'll get back to you. That's the standard answer. And then we reach out to you, Michael. And we say, hey, Michael, we're getting ready to approve this MRI, but here's the thing. Where your doctor wants you to do it, it's going to be about $4,000 and you still have to meet 2000 of your deductible. So you'll pay 2000 and the plan will pay 2000 But we found a place. It's about three and a half miles down the road. Same exact MRI machine. We'll make sure that MRI gets back to your provider. And if you go there, your plan will pay 100%. You'll pay absolutely nothing. What they don't know is that we've negotiated a $300 cash price. So if I'm the employer... And it's my plan that's footing this bill. Would I rather pay $2,000 with my employee paying another $2,000 or would I instead prefer to pay $300 and my employee pay absolutely nothing? And the same thing is true in surgery too. Um, the higher quality surgeons are almost always at the lower end of the price spectrum. And the reason is this, frequency. The more frequently they do it, the better they tend to do it and the more efficiently they tend to do it. And the numbers are massive. I'll tell you this one quick story and then I'll, I'll pause, I promise. We had a member just uh, this last couple of weeks who needed some sort of implant. I won't go into too much detail, but he lives in Western Pennsylvania. And if you know anything about Western PA, everyone thinks that UPMC, University of Pennsylvania Medical Center, is the, knee, the bee's knees, the best of everything. It's, but the data shows that while they are good at some things, their overall quality is pretty low, mediocre at best, and their costs are off the charts high. So where he was going to go for this implant, we got a price estimate up front of $97,000, not including anesthesia. I searched and I found the truest, the highest quality doctor for this type of implant. He does hundreds of these and he does high risk ones with amazing outcomes. And I found a facility that is totally transparent in their price and quality to do the surgery at. And between the two of them, not only was the quality scores far higher, but I had a pre-negotiated, pre-arranged price of $16,000. Yes, it was in Oklahoma, so the employer's plan had to pay a couple thousand dollars for travel and hotel, but we got it for well under $20,000 at a much higher quality place. So the plan paid the entire cost versus if they went to UPMC, the plan would have paid, who knows, it probably would have been 105, 110,000, and the member would have paid 5,000 on top of that. So like you said earlier, Michael, a true win-win situation. That's amazing, and, and and that's a challenge that so many people are facing. And what's frustrating is a lot of people are, what's the best way to put it, is kind of trapped into whatever system they have, and they really have no choice. It's like, okay, I have to pay or come up with $4,500, even if they can't pay it and ends up being a bad debt or they have to file bankruptcy or all these things that we hear time and time and time again, it doesn't have to be that way. And I know in, in, when you said this earlier about the healthcare system not being broken, the system as far as patients being seen by healthcare professionals to get the care they need and all of that, that part works, has worked, continues to work. Yes, there's ebbs and flows and all of that, but it's this 
backdrop backroom stuff that has just made navigating the healthcare system for everybody involved such an absolute nightmare. And while the Affordable Care Act was meant to, okay, we got to give more access to care, it added more restrictions than what we were seeing before. And it's really made things complicated. You know, my only, you know, not to get any political talk at all here, but when the act was first enacted, I know it's been through several cases and courts and all that kind of stuff. You know, my hope much like, and I, I spend my time between San Diego and Toronto, Ontario. So I'm, I'm in Canada right now and their health system has its warts for sure. Um, but it's one of those things where that act people can't look at that as, okay, we've got healthcare act now, we're done. No, it, it continues to evolve, needs to evolve and get improved and address these things that it's created because until it doesn't, it's uh, the quality of care could diminish because and you alluded to it before, the physician suicide, suicide rate is astronomical. And I talk about physician burnout and burnout in every sector. And it's alarming that the people that we truly need as our population ages are killing themselves and we're going to, we're going to have a shortage of healthcare professionals if something isn't addressed about that. And as our population ages, we know, you know, this as working in the industry, the claims get up because there's more things that break on us. You know, we wear ourselves out. And if you don't have the specialist available, especially in rural areas where, you know, they already have a tough time sometimes recruiting physicians, well, there's less then it gets into a competition of we need this doctor in our community. We're going to compensate him more. And he's never going to go to the middle of Oklahoma, for example, uh, to be able to do these types of procedures because the money will be too enticing for them to go somewhere else. Yep. Yeah. You know, and the one thing I do want to address is a lot of people think, okay, I know we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world, although few truly understand how much more expensive we are, but they think that we also have a high quality healthcare system in the US. And let me just spout off some statistics to disavow you of that. The World Health, I mean, you can go to many different places, but the World Health Organization ranks every uh, country's healthcare system. The US is ranked 37th. We're tied with Slovenia for the quality of our care. Canada ranks, every industrialized nation ranks above us, actually. There are some third world nations that rank higher quality. The OECD, which is our own U.S. government agency, they look at the top 10 largest economies and they measure many, many, many different things. But our healthcare system, according to the OECD, is 10th on a list of 10. So, I mean, you can go to so many different places. Here's a scary statistic. In oncology, cancer treatment, 90% of cancer patients are either being mistreated or misdiagnosed. And this doesn't, and you mentioned some of the financial harm. You talked about uh, medical bankruptcy. A statistic that really keeps me moving at night is medical bills are the number one cause of bankruptcy in the US. That's true. Most people won't argue with that, but nearly two thirds of those people had health insurance. Now, when I took my health insurance exam when I was 18 years old and finally legal to actually do health insurance because I was doing it before that, um, they taught the history of insurance, just general insurance. And all insurance since the history of mankind inventing insurance has and continues to serve one purpose and one purpose only to protect us from catastrophic financial loss that is the purpose of life insurance disability insurance car insurance every type of insurance except health insurance that is the only type of insurance that not only 
makes us bank makes us likely to go bankrupt just on the premiums alone, but dramatically increases that likelihood when we actually need to use it. And one of the scary things about these raising deductibles, besides the scenario I talked about earlier, is imagine if you're on an HSA plan where you have to meet that deductible for your for everything except preventive care. That's the, the requirement of an HSA compatible plan. And I'm a diabetic making 35,000 a year and I need my Genuvia, which is costing $3,000 a month and I have to pay the first $5,000 and I can't afford it. That means I can't treat my diabetes. That means my diabetes is out of control. That means I'm going to be going to the emergency room or having amputations or having eye surgeries, all of which are going to be far more costly for my employer. Take me out of work and productivity. I mean, it's raising deductibles is pure insanity. And I mentioned earlier how we make it so it's literally no cost if the member allows us to help us navigate them to a place where the cost is known and the quality is high. You can't do that in a Blue Cross United Cigna Aetna plan because the contracts that those insurance carriers have, especially with the large health systems, say that you can't, it, the health systems need, they don't need the insurance companies. The insurance companies need the large health system because. You know, I'm sure there's people all over the country listening to this, but think about in your area, especially if you live in a city, and think of the one or two massive health systems in that city. Now, imagine for a second if you are an employer and you have health insurance of whatever, United Healthcare, and that hospital system threatens to leave United Healthcare. If you leave United Healthcare, United's not even going to feel a bump in their balance sheet. But if that health system leaves the network, Every employer in that area is going to bounce to Blue Cross or Cigna because they can't not have their employees going to the perceived best healthcare system in the city, even though I'll tell you, the one that you most people perceive as the best is probably the lowest quality and highest cost. They just have the biggest marketing budgets, and that's what influences people. The other thing that you, that you alluded to is what if that quality doctor is not in the network? Well, I ask people all the time, how do you determine a quality doctor? Where do you get this information? Because I know for me, I have to pay tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars to access massive databases to get it. So if I have to pay that, where does the average person get it? And I've asked this question all over the place. And the, the number, the, when I ask them, how do you know your doctor's good? I get one of a couple answers. Well, I've been going to him for years. Okay, I, my car might be breaking down all the time, but if I bring it to the same mechanic for the same problem over and over again, at some point, I'm going to bring it to a different mechanic. And the second thing is they go to their website and I said, oh, so you looked at their self-reported bio. I mean, if they graduated last in medical school, do you think they're going to put that in their bio? I said, by the way, what do you call a doctor who graduated last in his medical school? Doctor, still called doctor. So there's this absence of cost data and quality data. And again, not to get political, but the, the, I, I am, about Obamacare, I always say, if you think Obamacare fixed or caused the problem, you don't understand the problem. Um, but what I would like to see, as I believe the fix to this problem from a government standpoint, the only intervention I would like from a government standpoint is for them to create a set of laws. And I don't even want to call it healthcare laws. I think it should fall under consumer protection, where every hospital and every doctor must publish two things some list of standardized quality metrics, just like every nutrition label is standardized on food. We should have a standardized list of quality metrics that every doctor is required to post in their lobby and on their website. And they are required to give an upfront binding price except in emergent care. If those two things occur, everyone's eyes will be open. Hospitals will be forced to compete on cost and quality. Right now, they're not held to any of that. And then most importantly, 
for people like me who are building plans that incentivize people to go to that place where quality is high and cost is low, we have access to a lot more information to steer and drive people to those types of providers. That is the fix to this. We are a capitalistic society. We should have free market principles, and none of those apply in healthcare. And we wonder why healthcare is such a disaster. It's for those very reasons. No, it's it it it's amazing, you know, the the information and you know the the backdrop, you know, behind the curtain kind of thing that has shown up here uh, in our talk today because everyone thinks, well, we just need to do this legislation. And I agree with you. I think healthcare is a is a consumer based thing, just like going to a Target or a Walmart or things like that. There's certain things and expectations that they have to abide by in order to be doing the work that they do. And I feel the same way that physicians and healthcare systems should be doing the same way. And, and flat price, because literally like go, it'd be the equivalent of going into Target and saying, okay, I need to buy a pair of shoes. Okay, there's no price and you have no idea what you're going to pay for it till you get up there, but you have to pay for it because you've touched the shoes. And now with COVID, if you touch it, it's yours kind of thing. Um, so, you're like, wait a minute, those are $300 pair of shoes. I, I saw them at Payless for $49. Well, too bad, you, you got to pay the $300 and you, you, you have to pay it. Um, it's, that's the system. And it, it, it freezes people and it, it's so frustrating. Um, but the thing of it is, the work that you're doing is you know, breaking down those barriers to give employers and you know, the people that need coverage um, a better option, a more affordable option for everybody. They get better care and a more affordable rate. I mean, that's that's what capitalism and everything that we want our healthcare system to be is is truly about. Yep. May the best man or woman win. That's all I believe. Um, I do post a lot of uh, both horror stories and success stories on LinkedIn. So if anyone would like to follow me or connect with me, please uh, go to LinkedIn and search my name. It's uh, It'll be in the show notes, the spelling. It's pretty... Uh, uncommon, so it should be relatively easy to find, but um, definitely a great way to connect and share the stories from around the industry that we're, we're talking about and showing people and failing and succeeding. There's a combination of both. I'll definitely have that information in the show notes. So David, thank you so much for your conversation today. Um, I, you know, I've learned a lot myself and you know, I, I, I knew a lot about uh, healthcare insurance, but uh, you, you shed some light on some things that you know made things a lot clearer for me and uh, definitely I want you to be successful and beyond busy in the work and expanding because I, I think the way that you're doing it is, is the best way for for employers and employees alike thank you so much for having me Michael thank you thanks for listening to the breakfast leadership show part of the breakfast leadership network Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.